Well, it is a great privilege to be here uh, with you, and I will actually be in uh, the office tomorrow here, and I'll collect this uh, smoke bush at that time, as long as it doesn't dissipate overnight, and uh, bring it back. So thank you so much uh, for your kindness. I have endeavored to thank people over uh, my time here and then also in preparing to leave, so I I won't try to go through all of that list now. Uh, One of the realities as well, Dwight mentioned, is that as we uh, have a final service, the the desire is to say something clever or meaningful or poignant, and the reality is we have had the conversations that we have had over the years, and and that will have to suffice. I mean, that's, that's the reality of the relationship. Now, some of you will recall, and just, just out of curiosity, how many of you were here uh, on May 6th, 2012? This isn't a police inver- interrogation. We have to remember where you were and what you were doing. Uh, but, but how many of you were here? It was my first Sunday as the lead pastor of the church. How many of you were here? And remember that. Well, well some. So, so what was the text that I preached? <clears throat> I know you laugh because it's so easy to recall. What were my main points then? Right, just like most services, there were no points. Uh, but it was 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. And so I've decided that about eight and a half years later, I'm going to preach that same text. Not out of laziness. I did type new notes for this. I didn't just pull out of the file folder. Uh, but I, I wanted to start the ministry with that text, and I think it's fitting to end with it as well. So 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, this is still the message, this is the Word of God. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they... This is what we preach, 
and this is what you believed. Let's just take a moment to pray. Father, one more time, strengthen my hands, and by your Spirit, bless us on the basis of your word to see your Son and to give him glory and to be conformed more into his image, for we ask it in his name, amen. Well, it seems like none of you recall my first message. So this will not seem like it is going over old ground uh, to you. Chapter 15, of course, is the long treatment that Paul has dealing with issues that the Corinthians have concerning the resurrection. That is, they are doubting or denying that there is going to be a future resurrection of the body. And Paul has a lot of logic that he uses to say, listen... If you deny that there's a resurrection of the body, what do you do with your claim to believe in the resurrection of Christ? I mean, if there's no resurrection, there's no resurrection. And then Jesus has not been raised. But if Jesus has not been raised, then all of this is a colossal waste of time. And worse than that, it is not just a waste of your time. You are still in a relationship with God which is characterized by wrath and judgment. And so, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, and your faith is in a false Messiah, if you are trusting that He has taken care of your sin, but He hasn't, then you are still quite literally damned before God. And so, you of all people are to be most pitied, not because you're following a religion that's spoiling your fun, but because you're still condemned by God if you are trusting in Jesus to pay the penalty for your sin, and he hasn't. There is no eternal life unless Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. It is is absolutely that significant. And so, he wants to demonstrate in this chapter that, of course, there's a resurrection because Jesus has been raised, and since we are united with him, we cannot fail to be resurrected too. So, to deny the resurrection in the future is to deny, logically, the resurrection of Jesus in the past. And yet, they have said that they believe the gospel, which is not the gospel at all, apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because it's in the resurrection that He is vindicated by God, showing His righteousness, and actually breaks the power of sin and the curse of death itself. There is no life apart from death being conquered, and that's what Jesus Christ has done. So, Paul is reminding them of the importance of this doctrine. Now, this also comes, if you're an astute reader of 1 Corinthians, you'll notice that chapter 15 comes hard on the heels of chapters 12, 13, and 14. And in those chapters, you'll recall that Paul is dealing with spiritual gifts, And one of the things, there's lots to be said there, but one of the things that he's driving at or reminding the people of is this. In the body of Christ, you have a fundamental unity. There is one body, but you have an incredible diversity. You have an incredible range of parts, of gifts, 
of members. And that fundamental unity actually is sort of the the foundation for all the beautiful diversity that exists inside of the church. And so different people have different gifts, but everyone is needed. Everyone is absolutely essential for the proper functioning of the body. However, as much as there is diversity in gifts, there is only one way to use use your gifts, chapter 13, which is literally the thematic and literary center and heart of what Paul is saying in 12 through 14. And Paul does not write about spiritual gifts in chapter 12 and then say, oh my goodness, there's a wedding tomorrow, I need a text. Write it to chapter 13 for it to be read out of context, and then goes back to spiritual gifts in chapter 14. He's not desperately interjecting wedding material. What he's doing is he's bracketing and centering attention on spiritual gifts can only properly be used one way, and that's the way of love. Now I will show you the most excellent way. Only one way. Chapter 15 rounds out of chapter 14 and seems to be a totally new topic. It seems like a complete abrupt shift. Except, there's a sense which it is, except he's also then reminding you all of the different gifts in the church, but there's only one message. The church stands or falls on one message and one message alone, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are the things that are of first importance. So, he says to the brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. So he's going back to the basics. He's going to be telling them the foundational, fundamental realities, and you never outgrow this. Okay? If you ever think sort of that you've arrived at a place of theological maturity because you sort of mastered the gospel and you can go on, it's clear evidence you don't understand the gospel at all. That's strong. It's clear evidence you don't understand the gospel sufficiently. Because the reality of the gospel is that all of Scripture flows to it and out of it. All of theology tracks towards it and then emerges from it. That is, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the high point of God's revelation. All of the attributes of God cluster around that event. The, the, salva- the, the, the salvific plan of God clusters around that event and finds fulfillment in it. And so everything that we should be doing in terms of church and practice, life and ethics and theology, it should all be centered on the cross and resurrection. In fact, much of what we're doing, much of what Paul writes is just literally extended reflections on the gospel message, working out its implications, so you never get past it. You never outgrow it, which actually is pretty amazing. Because for those of you who you have been involved in, in children's ministry here, you know, nursery and children's church, the exact same fundamental message that you can teach a two-year-old and a two-year-old can understand is the exact same message that the most sophisticated and brilliant adult can spend their whole life delving into and trying to mine the depths of it and never exhaust it. 
It's an incredible thing. The saving message of the gospel can be understood by toddlers and yet will be what we reflect on for all of eternity. You never exhaust its depth. Simplicity, but infinite depth. So Paul says, I want to remind you of this. There is no gospel except this one. And he references it in different tenses, past, present, and future. That is, you've received this. On this, you've taken your stand. That's present. And by this gospel, you are, it's actually, and then everybody here says, you are saved. It's actually in, in the, the grammar in the Greek, is actually what's called a continuous present. That is, there are effects in the present, but it's continuing on moment by moment by moment. So there's, it's always continuously at work now and through the future. So you could translate, you are being saved. And so we recognize this. That if you're a believer, we can share testimonies. I can ask you, you know, when were you saved? I say, well, I, I, I repented of my sins and put my trust in Jesus Christ. You may remember the date or not. Sort of at this event or at this time. I was saved then. And yet you recognize that the Holy Spirit of God in an ongoing way is saving you now. That is liberating you from sin. Freeing you from the power of Satan. And, and we also look forward in recognition because we realize that now we have not experienced all that our salvation holds for us. We have not yet experienced the full severance of ourselves from sin. We have not been completely conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We have not been transformed into His image in a consummate way. We have not yet experienced glorification. We have not yet experienced resurrection. And so we are saved when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And he's at work in that process of saving us now. But we look forward to the fact that the great salvation, the consummation of salvation, is nothing that any of us have experienced yet. It's in the future when the Lord returns. It's in the future ultimately in the new heavens and new earth, the other side of the day of judgment. That's when we'll experience the fullness of our salvation. Paul says you hold on to that. You, you've received the gospel. You, you're, you're saved by it. You're standing on it right now. Don't let anything move you. Be strong. Be steadfast. Hold on to the gospel. It is the only thing that saves. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. And then he reminds them of the gospel. For what I received, this is actually technical terminology for uh, passing on official tradition. What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And this, this message of first importance is going to have four key points. The first is this, that Christ died for our sins. Christ, of course, is the title, uh, Greek title for Messiah. The Messiah has died for our sins. Now, Paul does not here specify or work out at any length any sort of uh, theology or metaphor of the atonement. He does in other places. Here he simply says, the most basic level, Christ died for our sins. And that's something that anyone can understand. Now, in, in other texts, 
We are able to start working out a theology of atonement. What does it mean? How does that function? And although none of us understand it perfectly, we do recognize that there's a transaction between Father and Son that takes place on the cross. Jesus Christ is willing to die for our sins. Somehow, His death is a death which takes care of our debt and our iniquity before God. That's all Paul says here. He died for our sins. As we put together a theology of atonement, or what it means to die for sins from both Old and New Testament, we begin to realize that for Christ to die for our sins, He has covered them over. He has, he has wiped them clean. You see, there's a whole variety of metaphors and images that are used in Scripture to help us understand what it means for Christ to have died for our sins. He has redeemed us, that He has purchased us. He has bought us and liberated us out of slavery. Sometimes we talk about uh, propitiation. I mean, doubtless you were talking about propitiation yesterday in conversation. Uh, we talk about propitiation, which means that God is filled with, with justified wrath and anger, with righteous indignation when He looks at our rebellion, our, our ingratitude, and how it hurts ourselves, the world, and others. And, and He is righteously moved to anger. Christ, in dying in our place, satisfies the justified wrath and anger of God. That's what we mean by propitiation. There's also expiation, which refers to removal. That is, Christ removes our sins from us. He takes them upon Himself and bears them away. He carries them away. Our sin is transferred to Him, and He bears them as our substitute, removing them from us. His sprinkled blood, we are told, washes us clean. It purifies us. So because of this, there is forgiveness. That is, Christ Jesus, the Messiah, is willing to go and stand in the place of sinners. He, he lives a perfect, spotless life, a fully righteous life in the sight of God. He, he merits nothing but blessing and favor from God. Injustice is what He deserves. And yet He is willing to come and stand in our place. He is willing to exchange places with us, the innocent taking the penalty of the guilty. You know, the one who is infinitely rich taking on our debt to pay it off. He is treated as we deserve to be treated in His death. He's our substitute. Christ died for our sins. In the good news equation, what we contribute is nothing but sin. That's what we bring to God. We bring our wickedness and guilt to God. And in boundless, infinite mercy and love and compassion, He is willing to, in His Son, pay the penalty for all of our wickedness, to die for our sins in our place, so that we can receive all of the benefit of His perfect, spotless, righteous life. In other words, Christ is willing to take upon Himself what we deserve, and in exchange, He gives us what He deserves on the basis of His righteous merit before God. Christ died for our sins.
He is the victor. There's a, there's a model of the atonement today which is stretched too far in some places, but nonetheless, it's very important. It is, it is biblical when kept in proper balance. And it's a model called Christus Victor. Christ is the victor. In dying on the cross, Christ has victory over the powers of darkness. Christ conquers Satan. He conquers evil. He conquers sin. He conquers death. And in his resurrection, he is vindicated, showing that he has actually defeated all of our enemies in our place. On our behalf, he's defeated our death. He's defeated Satan's power. He has defeated our own sin nature and our own guilt. He is the victor over everything. He's the conquering hero. Because death itself could not stamp out his infinite life. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. A more contemporary song, contemporary always being defined in relative terms depending on generation, a more contemporary song expresses it this way. The mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend the agonies of Calvary. You, the perfect Holy One, crushed your Son, who drank the bitter cup reserved for me. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Christ died for our sin. And an older song contemporary in this room, only to Pastor Sam. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. The first thing of first importance is that Christ died for our sin. That he was buried. This is odd in terms of the most important things. Except in context, Paul is arguing for the resurrection, and so it is, ve- it is vitally important that people understand that Jesus was actually physically dead and bodily buried. It's, sort of, it's the proof that he really was dead, genuinely, that he was raised on the third day. Do you, do, do you, actually, do you actually believe that? That the Son of God actually died and was physically buried, and then on the third day rose to life in glorious power, 
in a glorified, resurrected body, having died once, never to die again. And so those who are united with him in faith have died in his death, have been buried in his burial, and also will be raised in his resurrection. In other words, you know, Paul in Romans will say he was raised for our justification. You think, what, is, what does that mean? I'm so used to him, to the language of he died for our justification. Paul says he was raised for our justification. What Paul means is Christ's death for you could not actually avail for you apart from the resurrection. Because it's in the resurrection where Jesus Christ is seen to be the spotless, righteous lamb whose life conquers death. And it's only in the merit of Christ that we have any hope of being justified. And so if it's not for the resurrection, you are not in a right relationship with God. Because if Christ is still dead, he died under the penalty of his own sin. And if he died under the penalty of his own sin, he can't, he can't do anything for your sin. He's paid his own penalty. No, the resurrection proves the righteousness of Jesus. The resurrection proves in God's sight he deserves life eternally. And if you are united with him by faith, then you will also have life eternally in his resurrection. It is his resurrection ultimately which allows you to be justified and pronounced innocent in the sight of God because the substitutionary atonement has been accepted by the Lord. And the fourth thing, that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve, and then Paul lists these other appearances. So, the gospel message is Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he was resurrected by the power of the Father, and then he gave convincing proofs to multiple people in appearing to them in his resurrected form. So, Paul reminds them of this and also says, and you'll notice this, this phrase that's used a couple times, according to the Scriptures. Paul is not proof texting, that he is not saying, now, of course, there's a verse or two we can look at or a passage or two. Uh, there, there doubtless is that. But it's more the whole tenor and scope of the Scriptures runs forward to the substitutionary suffering and death of the Messiah, the atonement that he provides, and how he, in his death, brings life to the people of God. So, in other words, this whole gospel message is not free-floating in a vacuum. It's actually the con- it's in perfect continuity and fulfills all of God's revelation history in the Old Testament canon. The entire Old Testament scriptures flow forward and necessitate this fulfillment by the Christ. His death, burial, resurrection, appearances, and ascension. All of this was according to God's plan. Now, there's a lot to be said about, you know, the, the list of people that he, he mentions the appearances to. We'll bypass that for now, uh, except to say here, again, there's a very diverse group uh, that uh, the Lord appears to and convinces. Paul, perhaps the most unusual of them all, he uses an extraordinarily strong term here. And there's a scholarly debate about whether or not the Corinthians have given him this label or whether he takes it upon himself. But he's sort of literally almost referred to as uh, the abortion. That is, he, he, the word, the language used is very strong uh, of something sort of expelled unnaturally 
in an untimely way. Uh, pejoratively, it can, come to, it can come to mean in connotation almost something like freakish. And so when he refers to being abnormally born, uh, he's basically saying, I, I just, the way I've come into this is, is grotesque compared to everyone else. And it's not merely that he was late to the party. It's not only that he wasn't around following Jesus during sort of the gospel era, or the era of the gospels more properly. It's that, as he says in verse 9, I am the, for I am the least of the apostles, and you don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. If there was ever an unlikely convert in history, it was Paul. When he was persecuting the church of God, he was convinced he was serving God. You'll never understand Paul unless you understand that. He did not have a bad conscience. He actually believed destroying Christians was God's will and how he would honor the Lord. But he's absolutely amazed that not only was he saved, but he was given this incredible privileged position of being an authoritative representative of the Messiah to the churches. The churches that he was trying to destroy, he now spends his entire life building up as other people try to destroy him. I mean, read his biography, read his life. And yet he is willing to, to, to do anything he can to advance the gospel, to see the church strengthened and the church built. It is the most radical transformation in the trajectory of a human life in human history. And I don't actually say that with any sense of exaggeration. I don't believe ever in the history of the world has someone been so transformed in the trajectory of their life than what happened to Paul. And notice what he comes to say. I don't deserve to be an apostle. I don't even deserve, you read read Timothy, where he says, look, I'm the chief of sinners. It's incredible to me, Paul will reflect later in his life, that that me, that what I was doing, God would have mercy on me. That's an example that God can have mercy on anyone. That's what he says. He's absolutely astounded that God saved him. And God gave him this role in the churches. And, and notice, notice this, this is helpful for us. Because I persecuted the church of God. And that's why. That's why you're okay. You're the church of God. Who's going to take care of you? God is going to take care of you. You are never, never the church of the denomination. Thank goodness. You are never the church of the board. Multiple reasons to be thankful there. You are never the church of the pastoral staff. And if that doesn't make you say hallelujah, little will. The reality is you're not owned by anyone. No pastor owns the church. No pastor has a church. Only Jesus Christ has a church. It is the church of God. It belongs to no one else. 
not the person who gives the most money, not the person who's been there the longest, not the person who's on payroll. The church belongs to God and only God. It can belong to no one else. At best, we serve God in His church as servants, but He is always the master. I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Paul recognizes, and you need to recognize this too, whatever gifts you have, whatever good is done, it is owing to the grace of God. Yes, Paul says, I worked harder than anyone which also, at one level, justifies really, really hard work for the kingdom. I worked harder than anyone, he says. He's not ashamed of that. But ultimately, it's because of the grace of God. Even the work that we do, if it's profitable in any way, the motivation to work for the kingdom, that comes from the grace and power of God. Saved to work in the kingdom, but not taking any credit for it. That's a beautiful thing. You know, that we all do our best. We should all work as hard as we can. We should all use our gifts to the utmost, but it is not for our glory. We are not building our kingdom. We are not building our church because we don't own a church. We are hoping to see the church of God built. But then who gets the credit for it? God. It is God's church. It is God's work. I mean, Crestwick Baptist Church, I mean, this, is, this church is what, 90 years old or something? Something along those lines, 90 years old. You know, it's, it, it's never once ever been owned by a human being or a collection of human beings. It can't be. If this, the fact that this church is still around is because God owns it and God loves it. God loves His people. God loves this church. Whether it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Now, in terms of team, in terms of unity and diversity, when, when I was on staff here, not, not terribly long ago, Sam would tell me about his days during the Irish potato famine preaching this message. <laughs> and, and I would take that to heart. This is, this is the message to preach. And as a middle-aged individual, this is, this is the message that I, I, I've tried to, to build my ministry around. And all the different teaching formu- formats, all the different topics we cover, it, it all comes back to this as the heart. And as a younger man, younger than me, this is what Jake is building his ministry on. So, so whether it's, it's the, the, the senior guy or, or the middle-aged guy or the younger guy, this is the message that we preach. This is the message that you believed. And so now, this is one of the great things now about, about being here today. I can meddle, and you can't fire me. So, <laughs> I'm going to tell you this. You're voting on your search committee. I'm not sure if my name's on there, but I'll tell you what you should be looking for. You know, what you need fundamentally is you need whoever is going to be 
opening up the Word of God to you, they need to be someone who works through biblical passages because that's where the power of God is and that's where the gospel is. You can't build the church on anything except the gospel, except that you can. If you read 1 Corinthians 3 before you got to 15, you find out that some people can try to build churches using all kinds of techniques and be wildly successful. And then the day of judgment is all burned up and worth nothing. No, but, but to build properly, there's only one foundation, and that's Jesus Christ. And everything you put on it has to fit on that foundation, the foundation of the gospel, the foundation of Jesus. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. And if you believe it, then you can say in the lines of that one hymn I mentioned, and Lord, haste the day. When my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.